Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Sandra Miles. Sandra, could you share um, a little bit of warning and how we can help our listeners listen in to our our session? Of course. So I'm happy to um, remind our listeners that sometimes information that we share can be triggering during the podcast and may be difficult for survivors and those who are supporters. So please make sure you are always taking care of yourself while you listen. If you need to take a break, just put us on pause for a while and do something that uh, will bring you some calm. Uh, If you need to speak with someone, be sure to speak with someone you trust or call a hotline. And we'll be sure to provide more information, more available resources as it relates to what we offer with the Take Back the Night Foundation at the end of this podcast. We will start with one of our Dear Katie letter writers writing so long ago with their own personal narrative. Let's listen in. Hello, Katie. Today you were at my high school and you were talking to the 11th graders. I was one of them in there somewhere. I appreciate what you've done for us girls, speaking out, and you were very brave. Then you were telling your story, what had happened to you. I had tears in my eyes. I knew what you were feeling and what you were trying to explain. I've been in a similar situation, and I was foolish and stupid and naive in a way. I think it was my fault. I have never told anyone about what happened to me. I try to tell one of my good friends, but I didn't feel right because if my parents find out, they will disown me or excommunicate me because I'm not supposed to do that until I'm married. But the boy wanted it. And I said a couple of times, no, no, don't, and many other things. But in a way, he was thinking that I wanted it. But actually, I didn't. I was feeling so dirty and uncomfortable. I hope this will stay between us. I just wanted to tell you that you're not alone and that you will someday get over it or at least continue your life as normal as possible. I want to say thank you again for coming today and sorry for some rude students who think it's all a joke when in reality, it is serious. This took so much strength and power to tell someone who I know I can trust and I think I can trust you, so please. Don't tell anyone or try to contact anyone. Thank you very much for reading my story. Amazing, amazing. And today our guest, so powerful, is another survivor of abuse. What would you like to be called? Anne. Anne. So A-N-N-E or would you like to do (laughs) A-N-N? A-N-N-E. All right. We do A-N-N-E. Welcome A-N-N-E to our platform. And I really respect and relish the fact that you come to us with your strong Christian faith background. And how does that inform or, you know, give you access to the, the podium, the microphone today? Well, I come to it, um, as, as you said, as a survivor. And but more than anything, I would like to be known as a child of God. And I came to know Christ at a very early age and had a strong personal relationship um, with the Lord. And I was raised in a very conservative Christian family. Um, And 
what was taught about sexuality was very minimal, but what was loud and clear was you save yourself for your husband. And how indelibly was that? That that sounds really severe. And like, I, I heard the same thing, but how did that resonate with you? You know, actually, I, I really accepted it because I did have this um, true love for the Lord and I wanted to please both my parents and I wanted to please the Lord. And so I didn't set out to be um, disobedient in that regard. Um, I wanted to keep my virginity and um, but I also wanted to accept the attention that I was getting from boys and, um, you know, that's kind of how I came to, to the night that changed my life was wanting to be liked and wanting to, um, enjoy being in this boy's company, but certainly not wanting to lose my virginity. Yeah. Let's roll back. And I think that's so very important. I struggle with the like I want boys to think of me as pretty sexy, but I know I have to reserve myself for marriage. How did you think about that when you were thirteen and fourteen? Yeah, well, it was it was difficult when um, I would roll back even a little further to kind of my tween years. Um, I was always very tall for my age and I wasn't overweight, certainly, but most of my girlfriends were really skinny. So I always, between not being really skinny and being very tall, I always just felt really big and kind of out of place. Um, And then as I transitioned to an early teenager, I just, I got taller and and really started to thin out and get curvy and, and realized that boys were noticing me. I was pretty. And, um, you know, that was, that was kind of a special time for me in those early teenage years that were still innocent years. And when the boys would notice you, I'm always curious, um, Anne, how did they notice? Like, was it an eye? Was it a glance? Was it, um, what, what, what did they do? Yeah, they might comment on, you know, uh, you look good in those jeans or in front of you or uh, behind you. No, totally. Yeah, in front of me, you know, and, and this was the 1980s. So, uh, the climate was quite different at the time. Um, so what was acceptable then certainly isn't now. And, um, yeah, so things like that, or, or maybe, you know, innocently a boy might just say, you look pretty today or, um, you know, just kind of include me in conversations. Okay, so keep going. What happened next? Yeah, sure. Well, um, and actually, I remember um, the first time I really felt like I was pretty and that I was a a woman was, um, I was a ballet dancer and I was cast as Cinderella in our um, small towns company performance. And um, there were grown men who reached out to me and they, they weren't inappropriate, but just, you know, acknowledge my skill and wow, you've grown up and what a, a beautiful young woman you've made. And, you know, it just kind of um, really boosted my self-esteem at that point. Um, so I entered high school. I was 15 years old when I started high school and um, I entered high school with this kind of confidence 
But at the same time, I still had an innocence about me and I didn't have any intention of losing that innocence. Okay. Um, so, Anne, thank you so much for sharing um, kind of your journey up to um, this point. And so you spoke a little bit about um, kind of the transition between uh, the awkward phase to feeling you know, more comfortable uh, and more beautiful um, as it relates to your appearance. And so my question is, have, was there ever a point in time when uh, it began to feel uncomfortable being attractive, where you felt like you might have been receiving the um, attention that you did not want? So I would say I was, I, I would have been defined as a good girl. You know, I was uh, popular. Um, very early, our small town um, elected for each class in high school, they elected a favorite, a boy and a girl. And I was elected right off the bat as freshman favorite. And I was smart. And, um, you know, I just really felt like I was on the right path. And um, I wanted to date boys and I wanted to kiss boys, but I didn't set out to do anything more than that. That was never my intention. Not right away, but what did happen was... um, a senior in high school started paying attention to me and wanting me to um, hang out with him. And, and I did, and I really liked him. He was very popular and um, my parents found out and then they completely, completely forbade me from seeing him. And, and I continued to see him. Um, So at that point it did feel wrong. Um, His attention towards me, even though it probably really didn't change, felt like it changed because my parents had told me I couldn't see him. Um, And unfortunately, they didn't provide much of a warning. Uh, That was still a time where not much was said about sex. And, um, you know, I don't certainly don't blame them, but they just didn't give me a reason, just said I could not go out with him. So was it... um... Was it that you felt uncomfortable because you felt like you were sneaking around or because he was making you feel uncomfortable? Um, Because I was sneaking around. I I think he was, uh, he never made me feel uncomfortable until the night that he went too far. And I think that was part of um, just kind of his MO. You know, he made me feel um, beautiful. He made me feel like he really cared about me. Um, like I was really someone special to him. And so we went out a few times behind my parents back and, um, he kissed me a few times and it was fine. I, I enjoyed it. I loved the attention. I, I couldn't believe that this guy was paying attention to me. And, um, it wasn't until the night of my trauma, really, that everything changed. I I think after we get through that moment for you, I want us to dig in on your like that moment afterwards. What what were you thinking about your body, your soul, your faith? What where did you land after the experience? It must have been so traumatic. It was traumatic. Um, you know, it was um, it, like 
most other times that I went out with him, I had to sneak around. So we left an event. Um, in this particular night, he took me to um, a country road, dirt country road and um, kissed me. And this time the kissing was a little more aggressive. Um, and I, I felt really conflicted because what he was doing was more than I wanted him to do. And I, I would ask him not to and, and say things like, I shouldn't, I don't want to. And he just became more and more forceful, but his words remained very soft and kind. It was, it was the strangest thing. And it was, it just caused so much confusion and chaos in that moment. Um, and then it was too late. What happened happened. And really, Katie, that's where my story begins. So I'm glad that you want to ask me about it because that was such a small um, part in my journey. But immediately after I felt shame and guilt and like I was um, used up. I appreciate you saying that because I think um, one of the misunderstood stigmas uh, as it relates to um, how victims tend to respond to trauma is this thought process that if, if it was really traumatic for a person, then they would run in the opposite direction. They would never want to have sex again, or they would. Uh, and for some people, that is how they respond. Um, but for others, they respond exactly the way you're describing, which is um, the, the, the thing that was taken from them, they then take it for themselves. And um, what some would consider promiscuous, that person is like, no, this is me being in control, right? And so, do you think for for the um, for the for the guy who is just out here, you know, living his life like nothing? I'm assuming, right? Like just going on as if everything is fine. Um, do, did you, can you talk a little bit about um, the dynamic between you and that person? Like, how, did you ever have an opportunity to try to um, have that conversation with him or um, let, let him know what he took from you or try to have him own up to it in any way? You know, I didn't because um, I continued to see him and, um, and later I saw others and became promiscuous. Um, and then he graduated from high school. And I can honestly say I've never seen him again, ever. Being from a small town, I have never crossed paths with him again. And I don't know what I would say to him if I saw him again, because, um, and this may not be a very popular stance to take, but part of it is my faith. I am over it. I, I forgave him. I don't think that he, he knew that it was wrong in that time period. You know, I can't lay, I can't overlay today's standards and what we know on that time. Now I don't, give him a pass or an excuse. And I think someday he'll have to answer to the Lord of what he did because it was wrong. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never seen him. I just kept, you know, I kept wanting to believe that he really did care about me and he really did love me. So I continued 
to see him on his terms behind my parents' back while he was seeing other girls too. Sandra, before I, we go on, um, I want to just dig back on something you said. And you said the Lord will hold him accountable, basically. Mm-hmm. And you rest in that. And for so many of our listeners, we all wrestle with how do we have this sense of accountability, retribution, and resting in our souls that there's something that can be resolved. Mm. And I, I think you could dig in just a little bit more on what that meant to you. Because if God is, our God is the ultimate judge, how do you sit with that every day? Because sometimes we're impatient with God. Right. Sometimes we're, right, we're, we're like, hurry up and hold this person on earth accountable for their transgressions. And I think if you could articulate how you do that, Anne, that would serve our listeners who kind of have a symbiotic faith path with you very much. Sure. You know, first of all, Katie, I think it's a real personal journey. Um, I think there are situations where, the only way to get justice is to seek legal help. Um, And I don't, I don't think that's wrong for me personally. It was not the path that I took, not only because I, well, I would say it wasn't really that I chose not to. I just, it wasn't a path in that time. There was, there's nothing I could have said to anyone um, to get a response because everyone would have had the same thought. And that is I put myself in that situation. And so um, I think for today's woman, it's different. Um, There's no excuse for not knowing the very basic element of consent. Um, There's just no excuse. There's so much, education. I know it still happens. Um, but I think that even someone who has a close relationship with the Lord can find peace in prosecuting. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think it's a personal journey. And I think, um, the victim has to decide for themselves how they're best going to heal. They have to define their healing story. And if that includes holding someone accountable sooner rather than later, then that's what they need to do in, in my opinion. Love it. Love it. And, and I pivot over to Sandra. Sandra. um, Anne is a white heterosexual Christian. I too sit in that same space. And I also love when Anne is like, oh, we have to hold people accountable. But I also want to embrace all who have many different diversities of backgrounds and how more um, cumbersome, <laughs> cumbersome or maybe problematic um, the charge, not, not to belittle your charge, Anne, but I think you know, some of us have more 
privileged and holding others accountable regardless of faith, right? Um, so Sandra, what do you think about, you know, or talk with maybe Anne about that nuance about accountability? I know for black women in particular, it is very um, daunting to attempt to hold um, an abuser accountable, especially if he is also if he is a black man because of the within community expectation of um, always protecting black men. That is um, kind of the unwritten rule of being a black woman, that that is your job. And then secondly, um, because especially in this day and time, but honestly, even in times prior, um, calling the police on a black man could mean his life. And so there is never the expectation that um, a woman of color will make that choice um, because we are supposed to know how, how serious the consequences would be. And... Uh- no, let me just say one thing, Sandra, this this conversation with you and Anne and me tonight is really, really important. I feel like we're on the this trial triangle of really important because also you layer out the quandary, but many, many, many are laying also the faith of Anne against you know, God and our morals and our values, right, Sandra? So Anne has given her, like, oh my gosh, this is what Christ and our Savior says. And so often when I've worked with Black women, especially, they're, they have to put so many variables on the table, like my skin, my faith. And the faith that Anne is explaining is also the faith of a lot of Black women, right, Sandra? Uh, could you just maybe sum up of where we go and then throw it back to Anne? You know, how does Christian, so there's the skin, but there's also the faith. And I wanted to talk about that tonight. Uh, so I think that for um, a lot of uh, Black Christians, it the it, it kind of it goes it goes hand in hand with the community expectation. So it's almost as if you don't need to call the police because God will fight your battles. And so the the Christianity, um, the religious aspect is almost a weapon uh, against black women who want to seek justice another way because the Bible verses of you know God is the ultimate judge or um, if it, it, you love your neighbor or pray for your enemies or, you know, whatever, um, verse that can be used to convince a black woman that, that God is the only person who can help her and she shouldn't be looking for help outside of the church. Um, it, that, uh, that Bible verse will absolutely be used. And with Christianity being such a pillar within the black community, it can become difficult uh, especially if the person who you are accusing is well known or well liked in the community or in the church um, or has a supposedly a bright future ahead of them. So it definitely does become um, an impediment. And then if I mean, you, you add in the, uh, the just kind of like the cultural expectations of women 
I would say of all races, um, supposedly being more responsible. And so you kind of go back to what Ann was saying earlier of, you know, just being like, what were you doing there? Why did you put yourself in that situation? Uh, it can be incredibly frustrating um, to just want help, right? And to um, be told that the only help you have comes from the Lord and you better not ask anybody else for any other help. Uh, well, so perfectly said, Sandra. And, and you know, the, these are actually, Sandra articulated for me the things that weigh on my brain too. And how, how, what, what would you respond? Any order you, you choose, Anne? Katie, I feel like we serve um, a God of justice. Um, he is the ultimate judge. And I think he empowers us to seek justice. And so um, I don't think that any one human can tell another human that the Lord will take care of it, whatever it is. I think that is between the person, the victim and the Lord. And um, I, I just think that is, it's not against any particular faith that I know of, Christian faith, to seek justice. Um, I think people can distort the word of the Lord. Um, there's a verse in the Bible that people in kind of the, the Christian world like to throw out a lot in Matthew 18 um, that basically says, you know, confront, go directly to your brother. But that is so taken out of context. The situation we're talking about involves an imbalance of power. And that's not what the Lord meant when he said, speak to your brother, brother to brother. There's no imbalance of power. And of course, I'm using that word loosely to include sisters. Um, but when there's an imbalance of power and there is a victim involved, that journey has to be between them and the Lord or those that they seek help from because um to just say the Lord will take care of it, I think is glossing over um, a person's hurt. And I honestly think it's an insult to the God that I serve. And I would just ask um, Anne, I think for our sisters in Christ, one thing I wrestled with constantly is I need to save my body and my sexual being for my betrothed and I felt always marginalized by everyone who might encroach upon it but you're saying there's a larger scope and you found some sort of solace and reconciliation right with God absolutely yeah can you speak exactly and precisely to that yes I, I would love to I, I, you know, I am not, um, and every night I was like, oh my gosh, I am no longer a virgin. I cannot give my, my body, my soul to my betrothed. Yeah. How did you find solace there? Well, it's, it was a long journey, of course. Um, but the very essence of the God that I know is that he's a redeemer at his very core. He is a loving and forgiving God. And I learned two things at, at different points in my journey. But one thing is that um, 
I was disobedient to my parents. I was walking in disobedience and there are consequences for that. And so I made peace with the Lord about that and received forgiveness about that. But what that boy did to me was not my fault, was not my fault. And true, I was no longer a virgin, but God doesn't care about that. God cares about redeeming us and making us whole and allowing us to experience joy and peace and love. And one mistake doesn't write us off in his book. And so. But, 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 but Anne, uh, sorry, pivoting back to Anne. And if, if our listeners can't spend all the amazing time you've spent studying, how can they just zap into their soul the love that you found? Is there a zap? There is a zap. There is a zap. Um, I think of this uh, picture when I was a little kid um, in my Sunday school room of, of this man that was supposed to be Jesus knocking on a door. And that really sums it up. He is standing there on the side of your door or your wall or whatever you have put up. He is standing there and he's not going to force his way in, but he's going to be there. And if you just, I mean, all you have to do is say, I need help and I need to believe you're there and zap. It is done. Now it takes some work. It takes some work to really take this journey, but it can happen instantaneously. And Oh my God. I, I, I pray and help our listeners for tonight. Today. I actually want to go really basic because so many of us need to meet the way to healing and hope. And I'm right now, based on what you just said, I'm like, I'm sitting there, there on the carpet with you. I'm hearing your words in front of a, you said a mirror or no mirror. Do you need a mirror or no mirror? Are you, uh, when you to pray or, or where are you? Where, when I pray? Yeah, let's just give our anytime. Yeah, this this specific time when you are going there on on I've been abused and I want to thrive. Yeah, um, I think the best way to go there is to be honest, and that what that looks like is wherever you are and however you look. If you're crying, if you're Angry, you know, God can take be, that. That's what I think most people don't get is God can take anger. He knows how you feel. And now can you swear? Can you, I think for our listeners, where we are in the podcast journey, we are, can you say, you know, explicit, like F you or what, what can we tell God? How angry can we be? And he'll still hear us. You can be real. You can be you because he knows you and he wants honesty. And that's all he wants is your heart. And if your heart is angry and um, even angry at him, you know, for allowing this terrible thing to happen to you, give it to him. He can take it. He wants to take, he wants to take it. He wants to take it so that you don't have to deal with it. 
And then my, uh, Sandra may have another question, Anne, but my final for tonight is on your journey to healing, what was one or two tips you would give all of us to serve our journey as well? Hmm, I would say take it at your own pace. Um, and it's your journey. So heal the way that's best for you. If that looks like counseling, if it looks like writing, um, if it looks like being involved in um, bringing the person to justice, then um, it, it is your journey. And the only way for you to heal is to heal the way that's best for you. Um, you know, sometimes you have to drown out voices. Um, people want you to do certain things. I think Sandra was kind of talking about cultural issues. You have to drown out that noise and realize that in order to heal, you're really the only one on that road. So you might as well take the journey the way that best suits you. My final question would be, um, as you remind our survivors to, you know, go on their personal journey. What advice would you give someone who is trying to support a survivor and does not understand that personal journey? How can you encourage uh, friends, family, uh, any supporters, uh, those who work in the field? Um, what would you say to them to help them to um, just allow, essentially, a survivor to create their own healing journey? I would say making a commitment to um, letting them take their journey at the pace and in the manner they want to and respecting that, um, whether that's privacy or um, whether it's setting something up with a friend to say, hey, I I'm going to give you your space, but if you say this code word, whatever it is, then I'll know you're really not okay. You really do need me. Um, I think in any kind of trauma support, the best thing supporters can do is do their best to know the person they're supporting and to get out of themselves and not try to support the person the way they think they would want to be supported if they were in their shoes, but really getting inside the shoes of the victim and saying, okay, what do they need? What do they need? How can I, how can I help them on their journey? And that's tough. That's a, that's a big ask. It is. Thank you so much. Indeed. And uh, as we close out for our session, oh my gosh, Anne, thank you for carving out a place and a space for our faith healing journey. You've given us so many options. Sandra, thank you again for co-hosting. And I would only request you could close us out with your um, resource guide and go from there. Thank you. Um, so as a reminder, if you visit the Take Back the Night website, takebackthenight.org, you will find a list of resources for survivors as well as information about our legal support helpline. Uh, there are many people who support survivors and many different ways to approach 
um, being a survivor and supporting a survivor. And so we are proud and honored to be able to stand with you uh, in this journey towards healing. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. And thank you so much, Anne. Tonight has been another journey into the Dear Kitty podcast. Please tune in another week ahead and learn from more of our amazing empowered survivors. Thank you and good night.